Regulation and AI. Hello and welcome to this episode from 39 Essex Chambers, part of the AI and Law podcast series. I'm Catherine Apps, one of the silks here at 39 Essex Chambers. I'm joined here today by Baroness Chakrabarty CBE. Shami is one of the 39 Essex associate members. She's a Labour member of the House of Lords and was Shadow Attorney General from 2016 to 2020. Sharma is also a former Director of Liberty and is one of the country's foremost human rights and civil liberties lawyers. Sharmi, thank you for joining me here today. Pleasure. Now, I know you've been thinking a lot about AI and the law recently and that you've spoken in both the House of Lords and through your role in Parliament. And you've also received some closed briefings on some of the security aspects of it. Now, both the government in its white paper on AI and Parliament in the legislation in specific areas, such as the Online Harms Bill, has been grappling with what sort of law we need to regulate AI in the modern world. Is it principles? Is it rights? Is it rules? What do you think? I think that probably we will need, in the end, a combination of these different types of regulation. I think we need to achieve much more democratic legitimacy and transparency over the use of this technology. And so that is about legislation, that is about rules that are as accessible as possible to people, if not people themselves, at least people when advised by experts, a bit like law in general. But I think that the complexity and ever greater complexity of the technology and its potential applications also means that we will need some more granular regulation in the form of prior approval in the way that we have, for example, for drugs or weapons. I think we'll need some of that as well. Leaving this to principles is insufficient regulation, in my view. We will need some principles. I think we will need some international treaties in due course because of the universal nature of the technology and its applications. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for such important treaties to emerge, I think it is also open to individual jurisdictions and collections of countries to try and set the standard and set it high in terms of their own procurement, their own state uses of technology, and also what they will prove for specific sensitive purposes in particular in their various territories. We're going to circle back to medicines and weapons in a moment because that's a really interesting thought. But the government's white paper in April 2023 said that in the main, the government thinks that the answer is in principles-based regulation. From what you've just said, do I take that you think that's the wrong approach? I think that's insufficient. And it reminds me of what governments said about, for example, financial services before the crash, 2008, when principles-based regulation became a very fashionable concept. And I think you do need principles, of course, but to leave this just to principles, I think, is insufficient. In some areas, there need to be actual prohibitions. In other areas, there need to be specific prior approvals. And all of this within an overarching framework that, of course, is based on principle. But to leave the regulation itself just to principles, I think, is insufficiently clear and insufficiently hard and, and firm actually. And I think in the end, it is less transparent and less clear to the regulated and to the public who are supposed to be protected by this. 
So you mentioned medicines regulation and prior licensing. So I suppose the sort of paradigm of medicines regulation is that it's unlawful to sell or to distribute particular substances that are prescribed under the legislative regime and that certain people who have qualifications and approvals are able to and for specific uses. So in the AI context, would you see this being as a form of regulation of a type of the technology having a requirement to be approved before a particular type of technology can be used in the UK? How do you see that working? I think it could operate in a number of different ways, possibly subject to the use. It's a combination of the technology and its use. So it may be that certain technologies are perfectly appropriate in one context but not in another. It may be that they're appropriate in aspects of commerce, but not in the criminal justice system, for example. So with prior approval, that could be in the form of this particular technology is not to be used or not to be used in this area without prior approval. Or it could be kite marking as a lighter touch approach, particularly in the urgent short term before sufficient consensus could be that a state regulator or frankly even a commercial or NGO startup with sufficient resources could say we are now in the absence of legislation in the absence of international consensus we are setting ourselves up as a kite marking authority because we have brought together experts who are tech people who are ethicists And we believe that in the absence of international or even domestic consensus, we're going to set the bar. And people could be looking at the ethical frameworks and at the technology itself and giving their own kite mark or endorsement in the way that which magazine does, for example. That is a sort of light touch startup approach. In the end, I do think that we need some international consensus about the application of this technology, particularly in the most sensitive areas that, for example, include security, include criminal justice, and so on. But we can't do nothing while we wait for such a settlement. We're going to talk about the international side in a tiny little while, but just circling back onto this idea of either kite marking or specific technology or specific use approval, it all sounds extremely granular. And I suppose people often think of you as being libertarian, human rights lawyer, all of the types of law that you're talking about are really very different in what they are as law to things like the European Convention on Human Rights. Have your views on what law is necessary in this area changed since you learned more about the technology or is it something broader than that? I don't actually think that there's an inconsistency between my belief in personal freedom and my belief in public protection because I'm not actually a libertarian. I mean, I've campaigned alongside libertarians and sometimes human rights folk and libertarians will make tactical alliances, but in the end, they will never come together for very long because libertarians, for example, will always sacrifice the weak. If you look at, for example, the pandemic as an example, a lot of libertarians would be happy to have no lockdowns at all, even prior to vaccination and let the elderly shield themselves. I think one famous libertarian former judge said, without a hint of irony at his own aged status. But the difference between human rights folk and certainly ultra-libertarians is a belief in human rights safeguarding equal treatment between people, which is very important in this discussion of AI, because there's a danger of baking in societal 
injustice into systems that then get turbocharged for the future. Human rights folk believe in equal treatment and really safeguarding that. But also we believe in protection. We believe in a carefully calibrated framework of, yes, liberty and freedom, but also of protection. And I think in this space, therefore, you need a combination, of course, of high-level principles of the kind that you see in the ECHR. And some of those might even be rights-based. But you also need some more detailed regulation, which may have to change over time. So you have your high-level principles that hopefully you can achieve consensus over that will be there to guide you over time. But you will need some granular regulation, some prohibitions, some prior approvals, matters that are sensitive and specific to particular areas of application. And those will have to be granular and those will have to be amended, I think, over time. I'm obviously not going to ask you about anything in your closed security briefings, but is there anything insofar as you can talk about it in the public domain that sort of changed your view in terms of the use of this technology in either the security or the policing context, in terms of what types of law is needed? Absolutely. I was last year involved in a House of Lords Select Committee investigation into the use of AI in this country in the criminal justice context. And I was pretty flabbergasted at the extent to which the police and to some extent the prison system are already procuring and applying aspects of AI without any legislative grounding, without any serious central approval. And they are doing this. They're using, of course, people's data because this technology consumes data. And so we're using people's data, quite sensitive data. They are experimenting and procuring technology with little understanding of what it is they are doing. And they are pretty much unregulated by parliament or the government. They are using this on a local basis. Prisoner categorization is now being informed by this. We've certainly got a couple of police forces that are using this for things like stop and search. The Metropolitan Police are now using it for stop and search. In particular, they've been piloting the technology in Oxford Circus in the West End of London. And they compile the watch list. They decide who's on the watch list. They decide whether the technology is appropriate. The algorithms are not available for public scrutiny. They decide who gets stopped and searched on the basis of this. And I just think that... So many years after the Police and Criminal Evidence Act that was in its day a groundbreaking piece of Thatcherite human rights legislation, actually, we are now allowing the police to self-authorise for really potentially quite intrusive technology without any kind of legislative or parliamentary approval. And that is very concerning. And when you talk to some of the people who are procuring and applying this in the criminal justice system, they display complacency and to some extent even ignorance around the sensitivities. I went to a closed briefing at Scotland Yard not so long ago where I was literally the only non-white person in the room and this was so glaringly concerning to me I couldn't believe that the people who had organised this briefing hadn't even thought about that. Oh, it's interesting to hear. I suppose I'm going to ask you a little bit about sort of administrative decision making and some of what you've just said touches on that in terms of use internally, either in prison categorization or possibly even broader in the public service or for service providers, actually making administrative decisions subject to human review 
And I think some people think that so long, if you have a computer who does a lot of the data crunching and then does a draft decision and then a human looks at it, that's somehow all right. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of idea? I think that we can think about this as a tool. We have no problem with using calculators. We would have no problem with even a judge using a calculator to check something that is appropriate for mathematical calculation. I guess when settling damages, there'll be an element of mathematical calculation, but there's also an element of judgment. And what I have a problem with is ceding judgment to the technology as opposed to just, if you like, number crunching or pure calculation. And I think we need to think very carefully about that, particularly in areas of life where the decisions have a significant impact on people's rights and freedoms and quality of life. And that can be everything from whether you're going to get a job interview to whether you're going to get an insurance policy. In the United States, for example, there's something that we think of as a very private sector decision that the state has little role interfering in, like insurance. In the United States, whether you get health insurance or not pretty much determines whether you get health care. So if you're leaving all of that to algorithms with no human input, you're in real danger of what? Of baking in injustice, whether it's based on postcodes or inevitably on things like class and race. And you bake in every injustice of the past by way of your data and by way of your history. And you bake that in to make progressive change less possible in the future. And that is really my concern. And of course, the more serious the decision, the more serious the consequences for you as an individual person, the more dangerous this is. And we know from the material in the US that people have lost their jobs as school teachers on the basis of algorithms used by the education board. We know that people have passed and failed examinations on this basis. We know that it's affecting people's insurability. We know that it's affecting which areas the police go to in terms of policing. And of course, that when you deploy police officers in a particular area, you might think, well, that's a calculation that could be done by an algorithm. You're only making a deployment decision, not an actual arrest decision. But even where you deploy those resources will have a consequence because if you send police officers to an area, by definition, they will find crime. And we are historically not sending police officers to the city of London to crack down on cocaine use. We're sending them to parts of town, whether London or elsewhere in the world, where poorer people, people of certain races, are out and about and liable to stop and search and arrest and so on. I wonder if there's almost possibly three things going on here. There's the what comes out is only as good as the data that goes in kind of problem, rubbish in, rubbish out. There's also then the problem of sort of self-selection. If you're actually selecting an area that then predetermines the data you're going to get out. And both of them, I think, have been present already, even without using an AI making up its own programming. And then you have, I think, a third issue, which I think might be conceptually a little bit distinct in terms of, and you characterise this as judgment. What a human decision maker actually does, is that actually fundamentally different than what a calculator does? A computer is very good at doing what it's told, but... The famous example of this is the man who saved the world. I think his name was Stanislav Petrov, who was the Soviet military guy who was instructed to respond to a warning that the United States had deployed nuclear weapons. And there was a protocol 
And when the warning came, he was instructed that you follow the rules. And when you are told that the US have deployed nuclear weapons, you retaliate. And that was a clear protocol, a bit like an algorithm, actually, a recipe, a list, very clear instruction. When this happens, that happens. But Mr. Petrov said, no, this doesn't feel right. I can't do this. Whatever was going on, he paused. And of course, then the malfunction was detected. And this guy, by pausing, by doing something he wasn't instructed to do, prevented what could have been pretty awful consequences, hence the man who saved the world. And in a way, as a lawyer, I think about these little safety valves in the law. Right. So I think it was Ronald Walkin who famously talked about good law as like a ring donut of rules and discretion. And you need the right balance of rules and discretion to make good law, right? Too harsh a rule, injustice follows. Too much discretion and you get discrimination and arbitrary conduct. You need the right balance. But in addition to the rules and discretion, you sometimes need something else, like a perverse acquittal. So the perverse acquittal is one of the many good reasons that I believe in juries, because if they are faced with a law that is itself so harsh or wrong in the circumstances of whatever it is, Clive Ponting's case or some other case where the jury goes, no, we're not going to do this. You've got a little compassionate revolution. And if you like, every time you phone the bank or phone the internet company or phone whichever utilities provider and you actually get through to a human being rather than a robot. I mean, A, you feel a little bit of personal joy and connection, which is important for your dignity and sense of being a member of society. But B, there is the possibility of a compassionate, what I call a, a tiny little compassionate revolution where the person says, well, yes, technically you should be on plan A, but it does seem that you've been paying for your internet service for weeks without the service being available. I'm just going to waive that. And maybe sometimes they're actually empowered to do that. Maybe sometimes they're not, but they just do that anyway. Have you ever sat on a crowded train or stood on a crowded train that is unsafe in the baking heat and someone's coming to check tickets and there are people in first class who don't have a first class ticket, but the train is rammed and the ticket collector says, I'm not going to charge you for first class because it's outrageous. That's a little compassionate revolution of a kind that might seem small in general, but it, in the moment it's quite important to that person. And the more serious the decisions, the more important that little X factor is. There's a rather lovely phrase that Lord Reed used in the British Oxygen case all the way back in 1970 about discretionary decision making. And he says that a discretionary decision maker can't sort of fetter, can't sort of get his discretion sort of stuck. But the decision maker has to always keep their mind ajar. It is sort of a beautiful image of a kind of window slightly open or a door slightly open. But in terms of how a computer works, having a bit of computer code ajar, that just results in an error mode. So as you say, those just tiny little sort of human interactions and those exercises of discretion, how much of the world and how much of law actually depends on that mind ajar principle sort of existing within our legal system? This is a million dollar question, isn't it? And I want to make the argument against myself too, for the purposes of this exercise. The argument against me is that's all very well, Chakrabarti, in an ideal world where the discretion is exercised compassionately, 
But what if the discretion is actually being exercised by racist human beings and sexist human beings? It's always being exercised in favour of, this is now, in favour of some nor others. That is a good point. And some of the cyber utopians claim that their computers and their algorithms are going to be so much better than we awful human beings, presumably because they're cloned in the image of somebody like Elon Musk or someone with perfect compassion and vision and so on. But look, to be serious... What we want is to use this as a tool and what we want to use it to be in charge of it rather than it be in charge of us. We want it to be transparent. We want it to be constantly checked and we want to use it a bit like the souped up pocket calculator and not as a substitute for the human. And it's about getting that balance right. And that is why we do need granular regulation in addition to high level principles. I do think we need high level principles, not least at the treaty level. Of course we do. But I think we'll need the granular regulation to get this balance between human and computer and discretion and turbocharged algorithms or rules to get that balance right. And I guess treaties always take just rather longer than things domestically, just that's the reality of the world, isn't it? Which means that we can start and then hope to be setting a gold standard in regulation that other people will follow. Final point on that X factor, that little bit of the door ajar, so to speak, to use your wonderful analogy. In my example of the perverse acquittal, people who are against jury trials will say, well, there are many perverse convictions, but I should be able to appeal the conviction. So what you want to do is to make sure that the perversity works in favour of people and not against them. So there's something potentially there about appealing harshness, but not appealing compassion. So window opens, but only in one direction. Well, a bit like if you think about the Strasbourg jurisdiction, for example, if you think about the relationship between, say, the Human Rights Act and eventually going to the Strasbourg court, it's the victim of the human rights abuse who gets to go to Strasbourg if they're unhappy, ultimately, even with the Supreme Court. It's not the government who perpetrates the abuse rather than is a victim that gets to do that. So there's a way of looking at default positions and my little moments of compassion, looking at it in that way. Well, it's also interesting and gives us so much food for thought. I'm going to ask you a question now that we're going to, we're asking every one of our speakers, and that's on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is the most pessimistic about AI and its role in society, and 10 is the most optimistic, it's going to be brilliant, it's going to save the world. Where would you place yourself on that spectrum, and do you want to tell me why? Obviously, it depends on the time frame. I suspect we're going to make a lot of mistakes before this settles down, as with all new technology. I'm probably going to be boring and go for something like five. And that's probably me being slightly optimistic because I do fear that at the moment, the regulation, and that means the ethics and the politics and the debate is moving too slowly. And the cat is already out of the bag and the genie is already out of the bottle. And so much of this is happening without democratic debate, let alone consent, that I'm probably slightly pessimistic in the short term. I think we will probably do better in the slightly longer term, but we will be having to play catch up, unfortunately, as we have with nuclear weapons, for example. Once upon a time when I was a child, we were afraid of conflict between the two world superpowers, but to some extent, mutually assured destruction worked. 
and it worked when the world had two superpowers and the blocks that sat underneath them. Now we are petrified that one of those former superpowers could be in a civil war situation, right? The modern day Russia, and this is one of the world's major superpowers. So this kind of two powers, binary, mutually assured destruction theory, it's not working anymore. And there aren't many people who are gung-ho about nuclear weapons being a good thing in the way that they were back in the day when even Einstein, who had been a pacifist, signed a letter to President Roosevelt saying, let's speed up our nuclear weapons program to get ahead of the Germans and end World War II. And let's remember, and I do think this is relevant in this context, when Einstein later was practically on his deathbed in Princeton, he said that signing that letter to Roosevelt was the greatest regret of his life. He's a wonderful scientist, one of the greatest men of the 20th century. He thinks that urging the speeding up of nuclear weapons research was the greatest regret of his life. And I want us not to have Einstein's regret. Possibly the law needs to change with the time and the technology, but if we don't have any law to start with, it can't be good. Well, thank you so much, Xiaomi, and thank you everybody for listening. This has been the 39 Essex Chambers podcast on AI and the law, regulation and the law. Thank you. Thank you.